The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, we need to go to the Lord. Make sure we're in fellowship. We have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. As we bow our heads together, uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together this morning to study Your Word, to be challenged by what is in Your Word that You have revealed to us and for us. Father, we pray that as we study this morning that we may have concentration, that as we are walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, that God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us, that He will take the doctrines that we've learned before, couple them with the doctrines that we are learning now, and use that to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in each of us. We were saved for a purpose, and that is to grow to maturity, to glorify and honor you in all that we think and all that we do. We pray that this will be a time that God the Holy Spirit will use magnificently in each of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are several visitors this morning. And We've been studying Revelation chapter 3. We're coming to the conclusion of a section in the beginning of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 gives us a series of seven letters, ecclesiastical evaluation reports from the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, to his church. And each of these letters gives certain dimensions related to their failures as well as their successes. But at the end of every one of these evaluation reports, there is a challenge. There's an incentive clause directed to the members of the church, and that is don't be satisfied with just being saved, but press on to be in those classified as overcomers, as victors in the Christian life, those who are nikao. And so we're studying this whole concept of being an overcomer and trying to understand exactly what that means scripturally. Revelation 3.21 states, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me 
on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. The speaker is the Lord Jesus Christ. He indicates here that there is a comparison or there is a relationship between the way He overcame and sat at the right hand of His Father on His Father's throne and the way we too can follow in that same pattern and overcome and sit on His throne or with Him and indicating that we would rule and reign with Him in the Millennial Kingdom. The term overcomer is crucial to understand. It comes from the verb nikao, related to the noun nike for the goddess of victory. It refers to victors, winners, conquerors, overcomers. It's in a participial form here, but it is used as a noun. And so it refers to those who are victors, those who are conquerors, those who are overcomers in the Christian life. But as we've studied in the past, we've seen that there are some issues related to understanding this particular word. The apparent problem comes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. In that verse, we read, For whatever is born of God, indicating whoever is regenerate, overcomes the world. And it seems to suggest that if you're an overcomer, you will overcome the world, that these things go hand in hand. So we have to address that. As we look at this passage, what we see is the key phrase there, the object of overcoming, is the world. And the world, as I've been showing the last couple of weeks, is distinct from sin. We're not talking about Christ's work on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. We're talking about something different. The world is not the same as sin. The world system, the cosmic system, is not the same as the sin problem, though they are Related, so we're studying those dimensions. We went to John 16:33, where we saw that Jesus said the night before he went to the cross to his disciples in the context of teaching them about the uh, principles of the spiritual life that would come into play during the church age. He said, "These things, that is what I've been teaching you, beginning in the uh, Passover meal, in start, which was uh, covered in John chapter 13." Through the end of John chapter 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. This is not talking about positional peace, reconciliation that we all have at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. This is talking about experiential contentment, tranquility, stability that is part of the package for every believer as they grow and mature and learn to put their focus on the Word of God, exercising the faith rest drill, trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in the promises of God, advancing through their understanding of doctrine and application, that even though they are in tribulation, Jesus goes on to say, in the world you will have tribulation, testing. There will be adversity that you and I will face in life. We don't see it coming. We don't know what it's going to be like. You have no idea what... Uh, it lies around the corner. The key is to prepare for it. Psalm, I mean, Proverbs chapter 2 talks about the importance of getting wisdom now because once you need it, it's too late. You can't go back and do makeups. You have one shot, get it first, then hit the tr- crisis because once you're in the crisis, it's more difficult to learn the doctrine that you need to apply for the, co- uh, for, for the crisis. So Jesus says in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. You can have joy in the midst of crisis. 
He says, I have overcome the world. Once again, we see that the world is the object of the action, the object of the verb overcoming. Again, this is something different from what was done on the cross. We saw that the verb overcome here, same verb that we have in Revelation chapter 3 and in numerous passages in 1 John, is a perfect tense verb. That indicates completed action. That means that when Jesus is addressing his disciples, before he goes to Gethsemane, before he's arrested, before he's beaten, before he goes through this night and next morning of horror culminating in the cross and his uh, reception of our imputed sins, separation from God judicially, the payment of the sin penalty, physical death, burial. Before any of that happens, he has already accomplished this victory. He has already overcome the world. It is a categorically different facet than what occurs at the cross. That tells us that overcoming the world is related to the spiritual life dynamic and not related to salvation. Now, the reason that's important, you may not have run across this, but the vast number of commentaries and Christians and pastors and teachers automatically assume on the basis of a misunderstanding of 1 John 5, 4, that overcoming equals being a believer, and all believers are overcomers, and all overcomers are believers, and if you're not overcoming, you're not a believer. See, that's Lordship Salvation. So we are going through this study to understand this whole concept. Very important to understand it because that's the mission of the believer. We are not only learning to realize our victory over sin. Remember the three phases of salvation. Phase one, you're saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two, you're saved from the power of sin. And phase three, you're saved from the presence of sin. In phase two, when we're being saved from the power of sin, part of that is learning to overcome the world system. So Jesus says that he in his humanity has overcome the world system, and that's a pattern for us. This is part of what we read in Romans 12, too, that we're not to be conformed to this world. There, it's a different word for world, but it's a synonym. It's talking about the same thing, that we're not to be pushed into the mold of the thinking of the world, but we are to be transformed by the renovation, the overhaul, the complete exchange of uh, divine viewpoint for the human viewpoint that's in our thinking. In order that, for the purpose that we may prove, that is a demonstration word, that our lives become a physical evidence that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, that's an important thing to understand in light of what we see in Jesus' ministry and in the, the, the words that are used here to describe what happens in the process of testing. It's an evaluation process that puts us on display, creating evidence in what appears to be some sort of courtroom-type action. We'll get into an understanding of that as we develop our, our thoughts today. We saw last time that, that as we as believers face three enemies... We all look so good and wonderful on Sunday morning and happy, but inside every one of us is this little corrupt thing called the sin nature. And that that sin nature is evil. The only reason you're not uh, able to commit all of the evil of an Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or an Ayatollah Khomeini is because you're, um, you're just not oriented that way. It's not because they were demon-possessed. 
It's because you just didn't move your volition in that direction. But your sin nature is just as evil as theirs, and if you made similar choices, you would end up there. Now, I'm not saying that these people couldn't possibly be demon-possessed. They could. But I find that, that we just have trouble accepting the fact that unaided human beings can be that evil. What the Scripture says is unaided human beings are that evil. They don't need any help. The only difference between the production of the evil in your sin nature and the production of the evil in, in Satan's sin nature is he's a lot more intelligent, he's lived a lot longer, he has a lot more uh, natural powers than you do. But we all have that same qualitatively same sin nature. That's the enemy within. Sin's dealt with on the cross, but we still have a sin nature. But we have this external enemy, the devil, Satan. And Satan has a way of thinking. And that way of thinking is categorized as demonic in James chapter 3. And this is part of uh, the characterization of human viewpoint thinking. In that passage, as we saw, it is classified as earthly natural, that is, related to the soulish man, the unbeliever, and demonic. So when the believer is operating on worldly thinking, he's thinking just like the devil thinks. He's no different. His thinking is based on the same basic principles, and this is described in Scripture through the concept of worldliness or the world system. The Greek word is cosmos, and so sometimes I describe it as the cosmic system. That's cosmic with a K not with a C. Don't confuse it with uh, the term for the universe, synonym for the universe. So what are some characteristics of worldliness? We went through this some last time, had some good quotes from Chafer, which I'm not going to repeat. But ultimately what we see in the scripture is that worldliness is the thought of the creature Lucifer in rebellion against God. It is thinking the same way Lucifer thought in his rebellion against God when he expressed his arrogance in Isaiah chapter 14 through those five statements, the five I wills, culminating in the view that I will be like the Most High. In other words, I'm going to be God. And God's not going to be God anymore. I, I can define everything myself. I can be the ultimate reference point for my own life. And I'm the one who is the ultimate determiner of my fate and my destiny. Hmm. Sounds a lot like secular humanism and postmodernism, doesn't it? But everything that goes on in the history of mankind in terms of the realm of thought that is set apart from and is distinct from the Word of God is classified as worldliness, no matter how erudite it may be, no matter how fascinating it may be, no matter how moral it may be. Satan is the master of righteousness. Second Corinthians tells us that he and his servants masquerade as angels of light, as ministers of righteousness. They look good. They sound good. Their rationales are appealing. That's why it's so deceptive and so destruction. Uh, so destructive. So if we're going to boil this down to two basic characteristics, and I've reworked my terminology a little bit here from last week. There's two aspects to this. The first is arrogance. The first is arrogance. Arrogance is the promotion of self. It is making the creature or the creation the ultimate reference point. This is uh, dealing with the fact that there's nothing beyond creation and evolution. Everything starts with this, this uh, core, dense matter that 
culminates in a big bang. There's a couple of other competing views. But ultimately what you have is a creation. You go back into the ancient Near East and you look at the Egyptian creation myths or the Babylonian creation myths or the Greek creation myths and they all borrowed from one another and influenced one another but they all start with gods and goddesses who are themselves part of creation they are not totally other it's only in the Bible only in Genesis that you have a creator that is totally distinct from the creation and is independent of it and therefore provides us with an ultimate reference point by which we can judge and evaluate everything in the creation. But Lucifer, want, Lucifer the creature wanted to make himself the ultimate reference point and so in following his line of thinking that's exactly what we do. We make that which is in the creation the ultimate reference point. Romans 1 describes it as worshiping idols of stone and wood. Man comes along and worships nature or nature's gods. Man comes along and worships his ancestors or spirits, but it's always oriented. So now we're too sophisticated to do that, so we worship the internet or TV or celebrities or movie stars or we worship our own success or uh, whatever it may be, our own emotions, and that's where we're headed in our society. We just love uh, bowing down at the idols created by our own emotions, but that's all part of arrogance. The other facet of worldliness is antagonism. It's arrogance and antagonism. I like the alliteration. The arrogance relates to that self-oriented, creaturely-oriented construct of reality, but it always ends up being antagonistic to God and to the revelation of God, no matter how much worldly systems may talk about religion, no matter how much worldly Christians may talk about the Bible and hold the Bible up and say, this is the Word of God, it is what I say, I am what it says I am, uh, we do what we says it says to do or whatever the saying is, you know what I'm talking about. And then you never talk about it again. I mean, that's just pure worldliness. It's, it's moral, it's good, it looks good, it, it makes people feel good, but it's antagonistic to the message of the Scripture, even though worldliness often cloaks itself in the language of the Scripture. And that's exactly what Satan did, and we'll see that in our examples uh, this morning. So antagonism always expresses a hostility toward God. At some level, when it's pushed into a corner, it is hostile to the truth system that is put forth in the Scripture. It's hostile to his plan, his thinking, and revelation. It always makes something other than God's revelation the ultimate reference point for knowledge. Always push it, push it, push it, and that's what happens. It may be Christian mysticism. It may be Christian uh, science. It may be Christian empiricism or rationalism, but it always ends up in some form of hostility to God. You, you can only have one ultimate authority. It's either God's revelation or it's something in the creation. So we saw that the characteristics, the other characteristics of worldliness are that it's an orderly, organized system of thought. Satan's brilliant. It's not disorderly. It's not chaotic. We may look at the world and say, gosh, it's awfully chaotic. And I, and I read you that quote from Chafer last week where he says, all of the chaos, all of the famine, all of the wars, all of the misery 
in, in the world is not a testimony to the evil of Satan, which is what most people think, but it is a testimony to the fact that he's bitten off more than he can chew. When he told Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be like God, he made a mistake. He wanted to be like God. Now she wants to be like God. Now he's got competition. Then Adam wanted to be like God. Now he had even more competition. Then Cain and Abel came along, and they wanted to be like God. And he's got more competition, and then it just rolled on down through the ages, and now he's got six billion people who want to be God, and he's got a heck of a lot of competition. And that's the problem is everybody wants to be their own ultimate reference point following in his pattern. And when that works itself out in history, it always deteriorates into chaos and calamity. So Satan promotes these various systems of thought to try to bring order out of chaos. So worldliness is an orderly uh, organized system of thought. We get that from the Greek word cosmos, which has to do with order and organization and structure. We get the English word cosmetics from that when a, a lady organizes her face to look good. That's the idea. It, it, order and organization is at the core of this. You may not always see the order and organization in these systems, but it's there. And these systems of thought provide the creature with a rationale for living independently of the creator. See, that's that arrogance thing again. It gives you a rationale for doing what you think is good, doing what you want to do. It gives you a rationale to validate your own agenda and feel good about it. And, and that it really is justified somehow, somehow scripturally. So, second point, worldliness is the thought structure which provides the rationalizations for the operation of the sin nature. That's how these things link together. That's how they come together. Uh, the world system isn't sin per se, but it provides the rationalizations, the thought structures within which the sin nature is able to just take it from zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds. And we just slip into it so naturally because there's this affinity between the sin nature and the thought structures of the world system that we don't even realize we're immersed in it while we're doing it, we, we have to take a, 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 the bright light of the Word of God and shine it deeply into the crevices of our thinking to be able to uh, cast aside those shadows of sin and rationalization that we've used for decades to justify our own autonomy. Thus, when we come to the end, worldliness relates to the post-salvation of the life of the believer are we going to think according to divine viewpoint or human viewpoint? That's the bottom line. Every thought is going to be structured within one of those organized systems. It's either divine viewpoint or human viewpoint, no matter how wonderful it may be. And the really good systems have incorporated a lot of biblical thought into them. But it's just like having two different jigsaw puzzles. You may take a lot of pieces from one and make them fit into the other, but they don't, they, they, because they're now in a different, different puzzle, they take on different, different meaning. It's not really the same. It's just like when you, as a Bible-believing creationist, who believe that everything in the earth is created by God, that when you go as a scientist and you examine 
a tree or you're looking at DNA structure, ultimately you're looking at it from a different vantage point and you understand it to be something different than the evolutionary scientist who's looking at it as something that's just a cosmic accident. And that affects things. So you're both looking at the same thing. You both can come up with a lot of the same observations, but ultimately you're looking at two different things. Human viewpoint is 180 degrees opposite and hostile to divine viewpoint. So I came up with a definition for worldliness this morning. I keep trying to make it concise, but it never gets much shorter than this. The biblical concept of worldliness describes the collection of ideas, philosophies, religions, standards, values, purposes, and methods to achieve those ends which characterize a culture or subculture. That's just the first sentence. It describes a collection of ideas and philosophies of life. Every one of you is a philosopher. Every one of you has a philosophy of life. Some of you have a well-thought-out, structured, intelligent philosophy of life. Others of you have a disorganized, hodgepodge, eclectic philosophy of life. But every one of you has a philosophy of life. Everybody's a theologian. Everybody has a view of God, has a view of man, has a view of, of uh, nature. And, and we're all philosophers. We all have this, this, this philosophy of life. Now, the issue is, is it biblical or is it not? So it's a collection of ideas, philosophies, religions. It runs the gamut from... Uh, religions of morality or pseudo-morality, religions of thought, metaphysical religions such as Near Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, Taoism and other things such as that. So we have all kinds of different religions including atheism. If theism is religious, then its opposite, atheism, is also a religion. It's that prefix of A that comes out of the Greek. The Greek calls it an alpha primitive. That A is functions in Greek like our un or, or uh, un. So when we put that A in front of something, we go to the negative. So theism is the belief in a God, and atheism is the lack of belief in a God. Uh, think about it a little bit. Musing is an old English word for thinking. What do you think amusement is? <laughs> Where you go so you don't have to think. Okay. The biblical concept of worldliness describes a collection of ideas, philosophies, religions, standards. Everybody's got standards. Everybody uses those, those words like ought and should, and that immediately indicates that there's some sort of hidden value system there, even if they say there are no absolutes. Now, Oh, is that an absolute? Let me think. So, watch out for that. Everybody's got standards. Everybody's got values. Everybody sooner or later says that's right or that's wrong or that shouldn't happen. Something offends them. So, there's always some value system. And it's always oriented towards some future goal, some purpose, some direction. And so, we have various purposes, goals, direction, and then methods to achieve that. I always put that in there because so many people think methods are neutral. I remember when I was in seminary, we used to talk 
about evangelistic methods, that there were methods that were biblically consistent and methods that weren't. Evangelism isn't salesmanship, and there's an awful lot of stuff that goes under the guise of evangelism that is just salesmanship. There's a lot today that goes under the guise of Christianity, and it's nothing more than motivational speaking, and everybody's really great, and let's make everybody feel good and get motivated. And that just comes out of a salesmanship type of of mentality. It's a wrong method, and a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And it was amazing how few people would accept that and would understand that. I remember uh, Tommy Ice and I used to get in all kinds of uh, arguments and discussions with uh, fellow students as we were going through seminary over these things, and they just want everybody, people just want to think that methodology is neutral. But methodology always uh, brings with it just a boatload of assumptions about ultimate reality and right and wrong and ultimately where you're going. So uh, worldliness includes the purposes and then how to get there methods to achieve those ends and that can characterize a culture or a subculture. What's a subculture? Your family's a subculture. You're, you're, the people you work with at work, that's a subculture. Every workplace has a, has a culture. Whether you're working in a school, whether you're working in a university, whether you're working as part of a sales team uh, for a particular company, whether you're working in technology, whether you're working in management, every uh, company Every organization of people has a subculture, and that subculture has values, and it has purposes, and it has all kinds of things related to this. It has a philosophy of its own existence and its own importance and where it's going, and all of that relates to this whole concept of worldliness. Okay, that's just the first sentence. The second sentence reads, as such, this worldview incorporates and is expressed in every aspect of a culture's views of the individual and social relations. How you view the importance of a person. If you're, if you're an American, you have a high, high value for the individual. The individual is more important than anything else. But if you go to other cultures, the individual is irrelevant. You go to India, the individual is nothing. The, 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 the society as a whole is what's important. You go to North Korea, the individual has no value whatsoever. It's all about the, uh, the, the, the state itself. So this worldview expresses itself in your view of individual relationships and social relationships. It affects what happens is how you view the two individuals that come together before a pastor and say, we want to get married and we want to uh, have a marriage that is a Christian marriage and view our relationship to one another within a Christian context. All of a sudden, your views of, of in being individuals changes within that corporate structure. It affects theories of knowledge and, of course, then its corollary theories of learning. This would dominate educational theory. How do people learn? What are the problems that come up with learning? Why, why are people ignorant? Why are very intelligent people ignorant of the gospel and willingly ignorant of the gospel? had an interesting conversation this last week with the uh, film crew that came. Most of you know when we were in Israel last summer, a film crew showed up filming a documentary on evangelicals and Israel and how 
uh, the state, modern state of Israel and the whole imp- biblical teaching about Israel affects their political views. And they followed us around Israel, and we got to know them. And, and since I was ba- there from out of Boston, since I was back up in New England this last week, they showed up at Preston City and, and videoed on uh, Thursday night at Bible class, and then we went down and spent about three hours together on Friday morning. And one of the men that came this time that wasn't in Israel, but a guy that came along probably about uh, early 50s, I would say, extremely accomplished musician. He's played guitar with a, a number of celebrities such as Carly Simon and a few others. He's had nonfiction and fiction books published. He was a former New York City prosecutor, and uh, his father was Jewish. He grew up, uh, I mean, his wife is an Emmy Award-winning director of documentaries. He's directed or co-directed five or six documentaries. Very, very intelligent. IQ off the charts. Well, I like a little bit of Buddhism here and a little bit of Judaism here and a little bit of this here. That, that's typical today. It's just sort of religion is a hodgepodge. Well, why don't you uh, believe in the God of the Scriptures? Well, you know... So we didn't have a lot of time to talk about that, unfortunately, and maybe in the future we will. But see, intelligence has nothing to do with acceptance or rejection of Christianity. You may come up with more uh, sophisticated ways of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But see, the issue really isn't intelligence. It's not IQ. It's not education. It's our lack of it. It It's moral. People don't want to know about God. They are suppressing that in unrighteousness. And that's part of factoring in this whole concept of knowledge and learning. Furthermore, we have expressions of reality in visual and performing arts. That's always a tough one for people because there's you go around the world and you talk to people and they would say, well, art and music just, well, that's just art and music. That really doesn't have anything to do with, with philosophy. But it all came out of philosophy originally back with the Greeks. Uh, science, technology, literature, law, all of this comes out of worldview. Everything. And the goal of the Christian is to start with the Scripture and rewrite all of this. We'll never get there. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fun? It's not just learning the Gospel and getting saved and learning how to confess your sins. It's taking the Word of God and learning it inside and out and then taking it into all the different fields of endeavor that everybody in the body of Christ is involved with, whether it's science, law, finance, teaching, education, whatever it is, and working it all out, working out the the foundation of biblical thought into those uh, intellectual dimensions. Isn't that fun? I mean, we're going to be doing this for forever. Okay, last sentence. When the Christian operates within this thought structure, I mean the thought structure of the human viewpoint culture, whether it's a primitive culture in the backwoods of, of Australia or South America or Africa, or whether it's in a sophisticated culture on uh, Fifth Avenue in New York, it doesn't matter. When the Christian operates within this thought structure, even though it may overlap in many ways with a biblical worldview, it's still classified as worldliness. There are a lot of churches in this country that are biblically sound on the gospel. They might be close to biblically sound on sanctification, but their structure within which they live and problem-solve and relate is totally worldly. Their methodology is worldly. 
And so they're trying to do God's work and work out God's plan according to man's ways because they don't want to think any more deeply than just the surface. We, we, the evangelicalism in the last hundred years has become increasingly more superficial and dedicated to the moment rather than the long-term plan of God. So this just helps us understand worldliness. Now, when did Jesus overcome worldliness? He did so in the temptations. Let's just get started on this. Matthew chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we have the temptations of Christ. Just some initial observations as you come to Matthew chapter 4 in your Bible. First of all, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is at the initiation of his public ministry. He has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, which indicates his being set apart to that ministry, his authentication by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit at, the, at his baptism. And then immediately after that, he is taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the first thing we notice is that he is being led into this position by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can put us in, lead us into positions of testing for a purpose. Now, it's important to understand this concept of testing that we have in the Scripture. The Greek word is peirazo. I don't have that up here on the screen. It's spelled P-E-I-R-A-Z-O, peirazo. And it is it means to examine or to test something. And the principle here is that God allows us to be tested in order to evaluate our character. Testing can be either positive in the sense of demonstrating the value and the quality of something, or it can have a negative sense in the sense of revealing flaws. So this same word, perazzo, not only has the idea of, of evaluation, testing, disclosing, re- bringing into, uh, uh, clear, into, into focus the, the positive things of something, but on the negative side it has that idea of temptation, of enticing to failure and bringing about failure. So the word's a, a broad word and you have to look at the context because sometimes it has the idea of testing, other times it does have the idea of temptation in the sense of enticing to sin. It can be either positive or negative. The concept also has certain applications related to judicial inquiry. I want you to think about this. We test or try some. That word that we have when we're, we're going to go before the judge and be evaluated is called a trial. It comes from the word to try something, to test it. So there is an element of testing that is related to judicial observation and evaluation. That's part of what testing can be. Testing for the Lord Jesus Christ was to demonstrate who he is and the veracity of his doctrine and the validity of his doctrine. That's what this testing is for. It's to demonstrate who he is. It's to qualify him at the beginning of his ministry. The second thing 
it was to do was to demonstrate the insufficiency of Satan's thinking. So it's going to do two things. It's going to, it's going to qualify Jesus by demonstrating the veracity and the validity of his thinking, which is grounded in Scripture. And secondly, it's going to demonstrate the insufficiency of Satan's thinking. And we read that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. Now that word to lead is the Greek word anago, and the latest third edition of the Bauer Danker Arndt and Gingrich lexicon says that the primary meaning, the first meaning listed, is simply to take something somewhere, to bring it somewhere. A common use of a word, if I said to take this uh, book and put it on the back row, that's the word I would use, or to uh, bring that with you when we go, that's the word I would use. But the second meaning I thought was interesting. The second meaning listed is that the word is used in legal literature for bringing someone into court for a judicial process. Did you hear that? Bringing somebody into court for a judicial process. These were testing, trying, and now we have anago. These are words that come loaded with a connotation related to legal action. So what we're going to suggest as we go through this is a framework for understanding Jesus' testing is that this fits within a broader concept of perhaps a trial or some sort of legal proceeding before the the bar of God's justice in relationship to what happens in that broader scheme known as the angelic rebellion against God, spiritual warfare, angelic conflict, whichever term you like to use. Second observation we should have as we start into this is that the order of Jesus' responses. As he goes through this, Satan is going to test him and he's going to offer him something. And then Jesus is going to respond by quoting Scripture. And he quotes all, all three quotations come out of the book of Deuteronomy. All three quotations are related to Israel in the wilderness. Now, where's Jesus? Jesus is in the wilderness. See, there's a parallel here. It's what's going on with Jesus at the beginning in relationship to Israel at the beginning. Jesus is standing as an antitype to Israel's type. Now, what do I mean by that terminology? A type comes, the word type comes from the Greek word tupas, which means an example, a shadow, or some sort of a picture of something. So we have various types in Scripture. We talk about type of Christ. Some people say that phrase so fast that a lot of people think it's one word. It is a type of Christ. And a type of Christ would be like the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was designed to teach something about the person of Jesus Christ. And this lamb was to be without spot or blemish. It was to be evaluated and observed before it would be qualified to be the Passover lamb. Jesus has to be qualified, tested, examined before he is qualified to go to the cross. So the Passover lamb stands as a picture of certain things about the work of Christ. You look at a lamb, look at a one-year-old lamb, it's sort of like looking in the eyes of a puppy dog. I mean, just most of you are more familiar with looking in the eyes of a puppy dog than you are looking in the eyes of a lamb, so that gives you the idea. Now you're going to take this lamb that just is so innocent, 
and he just looks so nice and just looks up at you with these big eyes that just are, you know, he hasn't done a thing wrong. And you're going to put, as a, as a Jewish worshiper, you're going to put your hand on that lamb and identify your sins uh, symbolically, ritually transferred to that innocent lamb, and then you're going to slit his throat. And blood's going to spurt all over you and all over the altar and all over everything. That's the picture of what happens on the cross. Jesus was just like that innocent lamb without sin, totally uh, undeserving of anything negative. And he goes to the cross and, and dies for us. So that's a type. Well, Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness going through their testing is a type and the term antitype refers to that for which it stands or that which it uh, represents. Jesus was, I mean, the Israelites in the Old Testament were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. They're both in the wilderness. They both become hungry. They both face life-threatening crises. It's how you think and respond in the midst of those pressures, the rationalizations and justifications you use for your actions and your problem-solving that brings in the focus of worldliness. In the wilderness in the Old Testament, the redeemed slaves are tested with regard to their trust in God. We go back and look at what happens in Exodus and in Leviticus. Their failures and their desire, when they failed, when they hit these crisis points, they failed, but what did they want? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They, they, they created, when, when Moses is gone for too long up onto Mount Sinai getting the law, what immediately happens? They get impatient and they have Aaron take all their gold and everything, build a golden calf, and, which was an idol that they picked up in Egypt. See, they're thinking like fallen Egyptians in that cultural worldview, and they just slip right back into it and they create an idol. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And then they complain about the food, the manna from heaven, and they start complaining about it. And we want to go back to the, the, the leeks and the garlic and all the uh, food of Egypt. They, are, they wanted to be back in that pure human viewpoint pagan culture and not out in a culture where God was testing and evaluating and preparing them so they would have the capacity to enjoy and appreciate and exploit the blessing that he was going to give them by taking them into the promised land. And that's where a lot of us are at times. We'd rather be in the comfortable uh, comfort zone of the world system and worldly thinking than to be challenged with biblical thought and have to go through all that effort of learning how to think biblically. We don't want to learn how to think anyway, much less learn how to think biblically and then put that into application in our lives. And what we see in the process of Israel's testing in the wilderness is the, is the issue of food and manna, which is in Exodus chapter 16, and then the complaining, testing, uh, God, the issue with water in Massa in Exodus 17, and then the problem in Exodus 23 and 34 where they want the land or the kingdom without going through the cost. And that's the same order we have in Matthew with the, with the testing of Jesus. First, it's the, um, he's going to quote from Deuteronomy uh, 8 related to manna, then he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 6 from, uh, 
related to Massa. And our, first he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 8. Then he's going to quote twice from Deuteronomy 6 related to Massa. Uh, and then from uh, related to the kingdom and land acquisition. So it follows that same pattern. So that sets us up. We can see the failure of the Jews on the one hand as they're facing crises and testing in, uh, in the wilderness. And what happened? They sinned, but their sins are encapsulated in the rationalizations of the cosmic system and the culture that they came out of. And then when we see Jesus handling the same test, he's the counterpoint and he handles it with the word of God demonstrating that juxtaposition of divine viewpoint thinking with human viewpoint thinking. Okay, we need to stop here. We'll come back and start up next time in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 3, as we get into the specifics of the three temptations of Christ and how he avoids the test by thinking biblically based on Scripture rather than succumbing to the thought forms of the culture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study these things. And even though it may be a little difficult or we may be unused to it, to to think a little bit more precisely, biblically about how we think. Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. It's not always easy for us to do self-evaluation, but when that evaluation comes from God the Holy Spirit, it is the uh, part of the path and process of spiritual advance that we need to think and live within the framework of biblical revelation and divine viewpoint thought, not within the framework of cosmic thinking, because Jesus overcame the world. He overcame the cosmic thought and rationalizations of his day, and that set a pattern for us, and if we follow in that, then the promise of Revelation 3:21 is that we will also sit on His throne, share that ruling and reigning responsibility with Him in heaven. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for every single sin in history so that your sin, your failure, is not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to trust in Him, to believe in Him, and at the instant that you are relying upon Him and His work on the cross exclusively, at that instant you have eternal life. And that life can never be taken from you. You can never surprise God. You can never shock God. You can never commit some act that God did not impute to Jesus Christ on the cross, some sin that God did not impute to Jesus Christ on the cross. Right now, right where you sit, if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you have eternal life. You are justified. You are adopted into his royal family. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with what we've studied today, that we may be more thoughtful, more conscientious, in our Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.